Spiritual Warfare by Carl Payne Chapter 1 Scripture is inerrant. Man-made paradigms are not. What would you say to a pastor walking into your office complaining about constantly battling feelings of inferiority, thoughts of suicide, and habitually hearing accusatory, debilitating voices telling him he's a loser who will never live up to his potential as a husband, dad, son, child of God, or pastor? He tells you he's prayed, fasted, memorized scripture, and studied his Bible. But the ideas, thoughts, and voices never release their paralyzing grip on his mind, at least for very long. Do you tell him he has a chemical imbalance? Do you assume he's obviously schizophrenic because he says he hears voices? And schizophrenics often complain about hearing voices. Do you tell him he's going through a mental meltdown? Do you tell him he's under demonic attack? Do you tell him he's not really a Christian, ignoring the fact he's faithfully and effectively ministered in a large evangelical church for nearly 15 years, simply because his experience doesn't fit your theology? Can you help him discern whether his battle is physiological, sociological, or supernatural in nature? If your answer to this last question is yes, you represent a distinct minority, even among Christian leaders currently living in the North America or Western Europe. If you've learned to recognize and distinguish these three types of spiritual warfare, are you also willing and able to show him how to take steps to successfully confront and overcome his particular battles? What would you tell a minister's wife who tearfully informs you she has a sexual addiction? What do you say when she informs you that she's leaving her family after 27 years of local church ministry with her husband because of her guilt and shame? Unless you can help free her of the bizarre thoughts and unrelenting condemning voices tormenting her daily. Is her problem physiological, sociological, or supernatural? How do you know? Medical doctors are available for referral if her problems are physiological, and psychologists and psychiatrists can help when issues are psychological. But what do you do when you learn that years of professional counseling haven't accomplished anything except deplete her bank account? Now she's convinced that since prayer, fasting, scripture memorization, doctors, secular counselors, Christian counselors, and pastors haven't helped her, there's truly no hope or help from either man or God. Is she doomed to a life of misery like the voices tell her? Would she really be better off dead? The voices tell her that too. What do you share with a dad who states that he's afraid his teenage daughter might be involved with demons? He explains that her problems with blasphemous thoughts about Jesus and voices instructing her to kill herself began five years earlier. She has been under a doctor's care and in the offices of both professional Christian and non-Christian counselors for several years, but her mental torment has only increased through the process. The medication she takes only dulls the voices, not eliminate them. The mental message she constantly hears is mocking, telling her that she's beyond God's help because nothing can and has eased her pain. She's told that if God really loved her, she wouldn't be going through this suffering and that she's a fool to believe he cares about her. Do you refer her to a private or state-operated mental lockup facility for evaluation and help? She's already been there and left the doctors puzzled, her parents in financial bondage, and herself more depressed than when she was first admitted. What do you tell a strikingly beautiful woman sitting across from your desk who's convinced she's an unlovable, ugly duckling? She's been flown in from out of state, following a two-week hospital stay for attempted suicide. 
She shapelessly tells you that her ongoing problem is the degrading voices and depressing thoughts she lives with on what seems like an hour-to-hour -hour basis. These voices, or thoughts, habitually tell her she's ugly, dirty, too fat, damaged goods, a fool for trusting God because he doesn't really love her, too lazy to read her Bible, and too stupid to get anything worthwhile from it when she does try. She further informs you that although she's able to read novels by the hour, when she opens her Bible, she can't keep her eyes open for more than a few minutes. Now she believes that her only hope for true freedom from her mental prison and suffering is by shedding her own blood and ending her life. The added irony to this story is that this woman is about 30 years old, a tall, riveting, beautiful professional model that turns head everywhere she looks. She feels mentally paralyzed, emotionally drained, physically dead or dying, questions her salvation and sanity, and is convinced she is unlovable, beyond hope and help, and too ugly and weak ever to attract a man of God. What do you say to a college athlete who's just attempted suicide because of the reoccurring guilt, confusion, and regret she feels over her premarital sexual conduct? She spent the last three years in a lesbian relationship. She now wants to break off because she believes in her heart it's morally wrong. But she fearfully and secretly wonders if she's destined to continue in this lifestyle, she now rejects, leaving death her only viable option. Peers and counselors, many of whom assume they're helping or comforting her, tell her that her sexual predisposition is probably genetic, and there's nothing she can do about it except learn to embrace it. These same peddlers of cliches, junk science, and moral relativism also assure her that she can best handle her guilt feelings by abandoning her bigoted and antiquated Christian faith, which only makes her feel guilty about something she ultimately can't control. The mental barrage she faced daily was, her, was very predictable. I asked this young lady what I would hear if I could step into her mind and listen, unfiltered. She was embarrassed, but also desperate for help. She told me she constantly heard thoughts and voices in her mind, telling her she was a terrible Christian and that God didn't really love her. She said she was ugly and that a man would never want her for a wife. She felt dirty inside and mentally tired of fighting a battle she couldn't seem to win, regardless of how sincerely she prayed to God for help or how much she tried to read her Bible. I've found sexual abuse is a very consistent common denominator when counseling men or women who feel compelled to live a lifestyle of premarital or extramarital sexual promiscuity and who also profess a Christian faith. They usually want out of this lifestyle, but feel hopelessly trapped within it. Approximately one year later, I ran into this beautiful woman at a church service. She hugged me and then proceeded to tell me that she was out of her mentally, emotional, and physically guilt-ridden relationship at peace with God, hopeful and content for the first time in a very long time, and growing in her loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you tell the pastor, the pastor's wife, the teenage girl, the professional model, and the college athlete that they're all imagining the thoughts and voices they have paralyzed their thinking? We're trained to assume they're either suffering from a mental dysfunction, a physiological imbalance, or an overstimulated imagination. But what if the voices they've insisted they keep on hearing are real? Is it possible that sincere and well-meaning doctors and counselors who reject the reality of the supernatural priori are actually condemning at least some of their patients to ongoing mental and emotional torment because of their own anti-supernatural bias? 
Do you tell people suffering through this type of torment that they're just not diligent enough in their prayer time and Bible study? That if they were really serious about walking with God, they wouldn't be troubled like this? Do you mentally write all five of these individuals off as weak-willed people who must be unwilling to consistently obey God? Do you tell them their commitment to Christ is also imaginary because they can't reconcile their struggles with their theological suppositions and training? The individuals I mentioned are not hypothetical. They are real. All five are professing Christians, as sincere as their commitment to Christ as anyone reading this book. Their stories, unfortunately, are not unique. The situation of the pastor and the pastor's wife may seem a bit more dramatic or unusual because both of these individuals are Christian leaders who have led Bible studies and ministered to others for many years. But the struggles they've battled on a daily basis in their minds are a sad reality for many of the parishioners in their churches who continue to suffer in silence. Why? With few exceptions, Christian leaders are neither willing nor able to identify and confront supernatural spiritual warfare. The mental harassment and demeaning accusatory thoughts are also the daily reality of many of their former parishioners. These are the growing ranks of members who no longer attend church or attempt to read their Bibles because they're convinced that either they've lost their salvation or Jesus apparently never really came into their lives in the first place. From their tormented perspectives, they are fearful, angry, lonely, lost, losers, spiritual shipwrecks, damaged goods, stupid, faithless, fat, ugly, unloving, unable to love, too stupid to understand their Bibles, and, as they have heard so often, it will never change because God no longer loves them, if he ever did in the first place. If demonic deception increases as we approach the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride, and I believe it will, then it's past time Christian leaders make an honest attempt to learn how to confront spiritual problems rooted in demonic warfare rather than in mental or physiological maladies. It's easier to avoid supernatural struggles than to confront them because of the fear of being associated with doctrines outside of our comfort zones. It's also more convenient for Christian leaders to refer such troubled individuals to medically trained experts than to admit that we need to be able to provide spiritual answers for spiritual problems that go beyond telling people to pray harder or to read their Bibles more diligently. Jesus and the apostles clearly taught the reality of supernatural demonic warfare, so why should we be afraid or apologetic about approaching this subject forthrightly? For more than a decade, I've been asked to collect and systemize my thinking and experiences regarding Christians, demonetization, and deliverance. Yet, until recently, I've consistently declined the challenge to publish materials on this particular subject. Why now? First, I believe God has directed me to do so. It's time. Second, these materials are biblically based, transferable, field-tested, and they work. Third, either the number of demonized Christians is increasing, or the reality of this problem is becoming more readily recognized inside the church. Fourth, I don't fit the typical narrow stereotype often associated with deliverance ministries by those who actively oppose the idea of Christians being demonized. I don't drink poison, handle snakes, roll on the floor, or throw or break chairs when I speak. God doesn't speak to me through dreams and visions, and I value factual information more than personal feelings. God's word, the Bible, ends a discussion for me, regardless of how sincerely and passionately the person sharing a different opinion presents his case. I'm a seminary graduate, an ordained conservative Baptist minister, an NFL chaplain, 
and I've taught ta classes for high school students, undergraduate college students, and seminary graduate students on numerous occasions. My bachelor's, master's, and doctor's degrees are all earned rather than honorary obtained through accredited classroom study rather than the United States Mail Service. I've had several books published that vary in subject content from Christian discipleship to ballistic missile defense and still focus on the majority of my ministry time on transferable discipleship and leadership development. I've continued to serve in large Bible-centered local churches since 1980 and have never hung a shingle saying, Exorcist inside, full payment expected before God can be contacted, or if you have faith. I have the gift. I don't know that I can improve on what I have already been written on this subject. Devout Christian leaders like Merrill Unger, Mark Bubeck, C. Fred Dickinson, Ed Murphy, Neil T. Anderson, and Charles Swindle have all made valuable contributions to our understanding of this topic. However, I believe that there is a desperate need to equip more Christians to comfortably and effectively confront the issue of spiritual warfare and to be willing and able to assist demonized individuals. Walking daily with Jesus Christ is a challenge in the best of circumstances. But regardless of the spiritual, mental, and physical conflicts challenging our faith, joy, and freedom should still characterize a Christian's inner life more than fear, depression, mental torment, and the debilitating belief that the human body is a jail, not a temple. Consequently, I think there's still room for at least one more voice in the choir of men and women trying to faithfully and biblically awaken and educate the North American Evangelical Church to the reality and subtleties of spiritual warfare in the 21st century. Materials on the world and the flesh are readily available for the person willing to read. But biblically-based materials from evangelists on effectively identifying and confronting the devil and his demonic hosts are harder to find. Fear of the subject itself and a reluctance to possibly be identified with theological and emotional extremism contributes significantly to the seeming boycott or outright rejection and ridicule of this subject by many Christian writers outside of the charismatic circles. After having worked with demonized Christians for nearly 25 years, I can say with certainty that demons don't care what church you attend or what spiritual gifts you profess to possess. If you want to serve Christ, you're a candidate for their fiery arrows. I've worked with Christians from charismatic, non-charismatic, liturgical, and non-liturgical churches who have all been demonized. I've worked with Christians from charismatic, non-charismatic, liturgical, and non-liturgical churches who have all been demonized. Demons are equal opportunity accusers with no regard for or fear of our denominational ties or theological hobby horses. They don't care how proud we may be of our religious heritage or the faith of our fathers. Spiritual warfare is a topic in Christian circles that can easily appear like a swinging pendulum. On one side of the pendulum swings are the groups who refuse to give any credibility to serious discussions regarding satanic-slash-demonic warfare other than a hypothetical lip service concerning the most extreme of possible circumstances. There is a natural, rational, psychological, or psychosomatic explanation for nearly all problems, they say, and the ones that don't fit their view aren't worth considering. 
The subjective experience of Christians who would otherwise be considered trustworthy is suspect at best. A more probable cause for such supernatural hysteria, they believe, would lie in the areas of faulty reasoning, emotional excesses, sincere but naive manipulation, poor Bible study methods, or, in some instances, fraudulent and deliberate deception. On the other side of this pendulum are groups that appear to credit or blame everything on the presence of satanic-slash-demonic activity at the expense of common sense and the need to take responsibility for one's own personal actions. According to these groups, demons somehow have evolved from the position of defeated, evil, finite-created creatures into seemingly omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent beings that possess and control everything from coffee cups to spirit-filled Christians. There's another complication in this battle of extremes. Most of our leading evangelical Bible colleges and seminaries are innocently ignored, deliberately glossed over, or even ridiculed on the topic of spiritual warfare in general and satanic-demonic conflict in particular. The bottom line is that many prospective Christian leaders leave school and enter their respective ministries as ill-equipped to personally deal with this conflict as they were the day they began ministerial training. I've lived over three decades as a Christian, served more than 25 years in the local church, and experienced countless seminars, retreats, and serious interactions with fellow Christians. I've found that my personal experience and exposure to this issue had two leading evangelical schools was similar to that of most of my colleagues. We simply did not discuss the topic of spiritual warfare, inside or outside of the classroom. We did discuss the reality of conflict and temptation from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And since the Bible says all three are real, we tried to decide which theory was most consistent with Scripture and our presuppositions concerning the time and fall of Satan and the creation of his demonic host. However, what we, or at least I, never learned how to do in my classroom training was to identify these three enemies with any certainty or to distinguish their methods in battle. Ignorance is not bliss. It ultimately guarantees we will fail to learn how to biblically respond to our enemy's attacks with any consistency and confidence. This puts Christian soldiers at a huge disadvantage in battles we face on a daily basis in this world, the flesh and the devil. Our fight is already difficult enough without purposefully giving advantages to our opponents. This book is an attempt to address the topic of spiritual warfare in a simple and transferable manner. It's also my desire to effectively challenge the ineffective twofold model of oppression or possession, typically used to explain demonic activity. I'm suggesting a shift to a threefold model, which adds the category of demonization. This model isn't new, and I'm not the first Christian champion the need to provide more accurate paradigm to explain the spiritual conditions of many Christians. There are several compelling reasons to make such a shift. First, it doesn't violate scripture. In fact, I believe it does a better job incorporating the totality of scripture on the subject than the status quo. Second, it provides an explanation for a Christian's spiritual battles that allow for confrontation and resolution rather than just definition. Third, it passes the reality test. Demonize Christians who have been set free and learn to defend themselves from demonic beating attest to this truth.
I offer this approach in the spirit of stimulating fellow Christian soldiers in love and truth so that we can grow together. If brothers and sisters in Christ are able to increase the effectiveness of their ministries by reading and applying these materials on spiritual warfare, then God be praised. We're a body. We need each other. And we should make a greater impact for Christ together than individually.